And take your Bibles and turn them open to Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13 this morning, we're going to continue opening up the parable of the dragnet. And before I read the parable, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Let's pray. Our blessed God, as we come to see and to examine and to look at your word, at the mediatorial reign of our Lord Jesus, Lord, fill our minds with truth, fill our hearts with a passion and a zeal for this kingdom. Help us to understand it. Teach us, Lord, its parts and its pieces. Teach us to appreciate it, Lord. Fill us filling us with truth, Lord, and directing our passion so that we might be made useful, Lord, in your kingdom, that you would continue to grow us up in the, the nurture and the admonition of Christ our Lord. Come and bless us now with, Lord, the truth of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And may we leave here, Lord, filled up with thanksgiving, Lord, that we are part of this glorious, blessed kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. I want to begin reading at verse 47 and read through verse 50. Hear the word of the living God. Again, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a drag net cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers and the bad they threw away. And so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And thus ends the reading of God's precious word. You may be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, I felt it important, if not necessary, to open up the parable of the dragnet a little bit more so that we might look into some of its truth and gain an appreciation for what Jesus is teaching his disciples in this parable. And there is connections to what we will learn from the parable to our current modern cultural chaos that we find ourselves in. Now, the essential truth of the parable rests in that it is setting forth the dominion of Christ as the Messiah. It's his dominion. He is sitting with his disciples and he is opening up to them what they can look forward to in this new kingdom, this progressing kingdom of God in his son, Jesus, the Messiah, the prince, the promised one, the one prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3 and verse 15, that promise and prediction known to theologians at that proto-evangelicum where that, that the Lord pronounced that Jesus Christ would come into the world and destroy the works of the devil, that he would put an end to his dominion of darkness, lies, and deceit, sorrow, and misery. 
from that time throughout history, God had been giving promises to his people and to encourage them and us all along the way, recognizing that God has not forgotten his people, that God is still sovereignly in control and orchestrating all the events that have happened and will happen, that he is in charge and in complete control of human history. He has decreed it, it's been ordained, and he is bringing it to, to pass in his providence. You can see the symbols and the picture of God's providence in the prophet Ezekiel and the intricate wheels and gears turning, that vision that Ezekiel saw and put in Scripture, that God's plan for the human race is intricate, detailed, and on time. There's no hiccup. There's no missing of the gears. There's nothing that breaks down. It is all perfectly in sync, in tune, in time, and it is going forward. It's a similar picture that we see in the book of Revelation, the apocalypse of John the apostle, when he looks into heaven and he sees a throne and that throne is seated above this sea of glass. The sea of glass is nothing more than human history and there's no ripple in it. There's no chaos in it. It's being managed, orchestrated, carried out. The will of God is being carried out exactly as he had determined it so. And we as his children are to take great comfort in that truth. Jesus is teaching his disciples in this parable that there's going to be a shift and a change in this administration of the kingdom of God. In this old administration, the one that they grew up in, that is in this, this uh, the religion and the ceremonies and the judicial laws of Israel, Jesus is teaching them that these things are going to give way. They're going to pass away. And this dominion of the Messiah is going to go forth in great spiritual power and encompass the whole earth. Where in this first, our original administration of the church, carrying out the covenant of grace, it's confined to the people of the Jews, the children of Abraham. It's confined to a small, tiny nation, and in part, like I had taught in the parable of the treasure, hidden away, if it, as it were, from the world. Though Israel was to be an evangelist to the world, they were to be salt and light. They were to preach the gospel, which they never did perfectly. And in fact, in many ways, they failed miserably at that task. And God was constantly having to discipline and rebuke and correct them for their waywardness 
You read the gospel of Matthew, it's clear where Jesus begins to rebuke them in Matthew 21 and on through several chapters where he accuses them of killing the prophets and, and, and abusing God's people and just perverting the outward means of grace. Beloved, the reign of the Messiah as taught in this parable is both spiritual and universal. I don't plan to cover everything that I said last week as an introduction to the parable, but want to go deeper into this idea of what it means to have a spiritual kingdom. The reason that's necessary is because when we hear the word spiritual, oftentimes we make a, 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 a mistake and disconnect it from this world we live in. That somehow it's spiritual, so there's no relationship to the world that Christ is laying for, uh, before us in Scripture and the world we live in. There's just no, there's no connection, and that's just a mistake. It's not true. We must hold to the statement that the kingdom of God is not of this world, but it is in this world. And because it is in this world, it does have a visible manifestation of its fruits, its power, its glory, its righteousness. That's you. And that's me. That's this church and every other church that professes, well, the true name of Christ and preaches that gospel and holds forth the word of God as the truth that all men should submit to and believe. There is a visible manifestation of this spiritual kingdom and that's what we see in the parable itself where Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is compared to, it's homogenous, it's like a dragnet cast into the sea. Something very real, something very distinct. There is a ministry that Christ has called his apostles to. And a part of that ministry is to go out and take this gospel and take that message and take it to the world, to the nations. Uh, flip over to the end of the book of Matthew. Just make a, a point. It's a it's, it's a Matthew 28 in verse 16 and following. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now, this is after his resurrection. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, I just want to stop there. The point is, and this is the emphasis of Matthew's gospel, is that Jesus Christ, right, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, is the promised Messiah, he is the one that is going to bless the whole earth with his presence, with his salvation, with his righteousness. He's the one. He's God's son. And he is the one that has been exalted above all things, all authority, he says. And that authority, that all authority is not just all spiritual authority over the devil's 
the demons or the angels, the good angels. Well, it exceeds that, that he's over all authorities. He's over all human dominions. He's over all civil magistrates. He's over all fathers, all mothers, all everywhere there's authority, Jesus exceeds that authority. It's all been given to him. And because it has been given to him, Jesus has the right, because of the authority, he has the right to delegate, to ordain, to call, and to send out his messengers into all the nations calling his elect. There's a a book that I would recommend to you by William Symington, Symington called Messiah the Prince. He makes a statement in that book, and I'll never forget it. It's a book that I read probably 15 at least 15 years ago, the statement he makes is that, that there's no permission needed for any evangelist or missionary to take the gospel into any country. Why? Why could William Symington make such a statement? Well, because of this verse. It is not the prerogative of any government on earth to cease, forbid, or to any way hamper the preaching of Jesus Christ. And men that have been called to do so have the authority of King Jesus to go out into the earth and to preach the gospel of Christ without human permission. Because there's an authority that's above all human authority that has already granted it. That's not lawlessness. You can say, wow, that preacher's a rebel. That's not being a rebel. He's got permission from the one who has all authority. That's not a rebel. That's obedience. And we must remember that. The spiritual kingdom, beloved, can be understood in its relationship to this world as that which is eternal and that which is temporal. Keep these things in mind. When we talk about the kingdom of Christ, we're talking about an eternal kingdom. We're talking about a kingdom with no end. That's the the prophet Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, that this government that the father lays upon his son is an everlasting government without end. All human governments will have an expiration date. There will come a time, as the text even says, at the consummation when all things are going to be sorted out and all human governments shall expire. They will be no longer needed and there will be nothing but the one true kingdom of Christ and he as the head of it and it will be glorious and we will all be in this kingdom if we maintain and hold to our faith. It's not temporal. It exceeds 
human governments. And in fact, leaders come and go. Some come and go by virtue of not winning their next term in election and others die out. Christ, he has died once to sin, never to die again, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. He's never going to perish, pass away. The throne is never going to become old or dull or insignificant or unnecessary. His reign and rule will always be, well, enjoyed. It'll always be essential. I mean, it is essential to our joy and our happiness that Jesus Christ reigns. You can imagine dealing with the, the foolishness, the, the absolute absurdity of our culture without Christ reigning at the right hand of the Father. What depression all of us would rightly fall into if that were the case. But that's not the case. That even these things that we are experiencing are all administrated and all carried out by the will of our Messiah, our Prince, our King, our God, our Savior. And he knows what he's doing. He's a wise king. He's infinite in wisdom. And he's full of compassion. He's infinite in love and mercy. And he knows what you need before you even ask. He knows. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your difficulties. He knows your challenges. He knows the trials you face. He knows your worries. And he is ministering to you by his spirit, in his word, by the many means of grace. Every time you pray, when you read the Bible, our blessed Messiah is ministering to those who love him. It's an everlasting dominion. It is seen in the parable that it's lasting in the sense that there is the dragnet, it gathers the fish. And the verse 40, and so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and certainly setting forth that those who are the good fish, those who are the ones that love the Lord, who want to walk in his ways, who endeavor and strive with all of their strength by the power of the Holy Spirit are blessed to be with him forever and ever Lasting love and communion. It's the opposite of being cast into the lake of fire where there'll be weeping, gnashing of teeth, pain and sorrow and misery forever and ever and ever. Where the presence of God is not a good presence, but a wrathful and an angry and an offended presence. That's what hell is. Hell is not the absence of God. Tim Keller's wrong who defined hell as a place that is absent of God. Hell is not absence, absent of God. Hell is the place where God's anger and offense is manifested every second 
of eternity. And those offenders are the recipients of that anger and that wrath for eternity. And the opposite is true for those who love the Lord, those who are saints, those who are called good, those who are righteous in God's sight through the shed blood of Jesus Christ who have repented of their sins. They shall be in glorious bliss where there is joy, everlasting happiness. Where there is the full manifestation of the love of God and our love for God, his love to us. Unending joy. Imagine it. It's hard, isn't it? The kingdom, this spiritual kingdom, beloved, and its power is set forth in that the text brings out that there are good fish. Now, the apostles would have picked up on the teaching of Christ when even our Lord said to the rich young ruler, there is no one good but God. Well, who and how can they be good fish if there is no one good? Well, turn with me to Ephesians 5. A text of scripture that we talk about this in terms of husbands and wives, but I believe the emphasis that Paul is making in uh, this this human, if you will, uh, uh, analogy with husbands and wives, analogous with Christ in his church. Notice what does... What does he do? Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Why are the fish good fish? Because they've been washed by Christ, the head, the husband. He has cleansed them. He's washed them. He's taken away their spots and their wrinkles and their blemishes. And he has made them holy in God's sight. Truly holy. Look at Isaiah chapter 52. This is not... Look at verse 15. Go to the end of the chapter right there, 52. And again, this is prophesying about the Messiah. That is, this is what the Messiah will do when his, in his exaltation. He says, behold, my servant will prosper. 
And he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Remember what we read in Matthew 28. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. What's this idea of sprinkling? What's the purpose of this sprinkling? Well, I just read it in Ephesians 5. He's cleansing the nations. He's washing them. That spiritual baptism, he's cleansing their consciences, their hearts, their character. He's making bad people good. Unlovely people, lovely. Unkind people, kind. Angry people, friendly. And selfish people, giving. He comes in all of his pomp and his pageantry and his power to do what? To make bad people good and to cleanse them at the very level of their hearts. You see, civil magistrate cannot do that. They can only establish some outward form of order. But in the kingdom of God, the spiritual nature of it, he comes and he makes bad people good. Praise God. Because isn't that some of your testimonies? Isn't that what I've heard from some of you? Is that I was once wayward and lost, but now I'm found in Christ. I once had no mind or heart for good things, and now I can't eat enough of them. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the picture that we're talking about here. That's what, that's what our Lord wants us to see. That's what he wants his disciples to learn. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Let's look at another spiritual aspect of this kingdom. Hebrews chapter 4. And you would think that a spiritual kingdom that is dedicated to doing the spiritual work has to have a spiritual weapon, a spiritual instrument to do so. In verse 12, we are told what that instrument is. What is it that Christ is using to bring about his will concerning his church? It's verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and, and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When the word of God is preached and it's attended by the spirit, of salvation and the Holy Spirit comes to God's elect. He preaches that word to their heart and they are quickened. They are judged. They are laid open before God and there's nothing hidden in his sight. 
And when we are made aware of that revelation, when we know, when we are under that kind of light, we are embarrassed and ashamed and full of guilt because our God knows who we are. And what we are in here, beloved, particularly before Christ, is not what we typically are in public. But praise God for the spiritual work of the Word. As it goes forth, as that dragnet, as it goes out into the nations, as it goes into every community, the Word of God goes out living and active, and it fillets open the thoughts and intentions and motivations of those listening and hearing. Nothing else can do that. Nothing. You're never going to read another book. It's not even Shakespeare. There's nothing that you're going to read more powerful, more revealing, more honest about human nature and character than the Word of God. There's no other place that you're going to be able to go that you would read to learn about yourself greater and more than the Word of God. And that's why it's a sin, beloved, when we sit in judgment of the Word. The Word is not for our judgment. We are to be judged by the Word. It's the Word preached, read, and instructed taught by those ordained by Christ to go out or whether you read it yourself, it's the word that comes to us to sits in the judgment seat and judges us. Beloved, this kingdom is spiritual and the instruments that Christ employs in this kingdom are spiritual. Let's look at the effect of it. Turn to Psalm 51. Turn to Psalm 51. We'll see the effects of this spiritual work, this work of the Word of God. Psalm 51. Many of you already know what that psalm is about. I'm sure that most of us use this psalm many times a year to realign our hearts with God's love and grace for us. But notice even David in his psalm of contrition, his psalm of pardon, he speaks of this spiritual work. He speaks of this work of his conscience and heart. Look at verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That Hebrew word related to the corruption of character. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David is saying, oh Lord, you are the one that comes and tells me my wrong. 
Now, David isn't saying that his sin has not hurt anyone. It did. That's not the point. The point of the song transcends the human experience and says, Lord, whatever I've done, whoever I hurt, whoever I'm guilty of harming and offending, it's you ultimately that I've sinned against. And I need you to wash me and to make me whole and complete. Brothers and sisters, the spiritual, this kingdom is spiritual in its administration. Turn back to Ephesians with me. Turn back to Ephesians. It's a spiritual administration. it's, It's an administration that there is a visible aspect of it. That is, there is a visible church where there are, where there's order, there's government, there's officers. But even in these things, it is a spiritual administration. Christ sits as the head. It is Christ's will that must be done. It's not the will of any of these ministers or officers. It's not the will that's the majority. The church is not a spiritual democracy. 51% means nothing to the head of the church. It is a dictatorship. It is a rule. It's a reign of Christ. His will is the will. He is sovereign. And he is the one that dictates what will be and how things will be. Look at Ephesians 1. And look at verse 10. Let me read the context back up at verse 7. It says, In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration, there's our word, administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. And I'll stop there. That word administration is the Greek word house law. This is the law of the house. It's an economic term. It's this is the rule. This is how it's going to be. But notice this, this spiritual kingdom and this, this universal aspect of the kingdom of the Messiah as set forth in the parable could never happen under the old administration of the Jews. What Paul is saying is this mystery that has been hidden for, for centuries is now set forth and in verse to in the view of an administration, notice what he says, suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, this is how it must be. And this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is how it's going to be. The kingdom of God is going to be like a dragnet. 
and the Messiah and the dominion and the reign and rule of the prince is going to go out through all four corners of the earth to the nations. Look at chapter 3 and verse 9. Verse 8 and 9. To me, Paul says, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for which for ages have been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says, now this administration, if you will, has the full spotlight and glory of a risen Savior, Jesus Christ, sitting at the right hand of God, whereby now he is bringing to pass all of those prophetic promises that the world would be blessed through the seed of Abraham, who is Christ. This aspect that Paul mentions here and is in perfect harmony with the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he say? He says, it is this manifold wisdom of God that he might, that might now be made known through what? The church. The church. That the church is the stewards and the custodians of this glorious mystery, this gospel, this truth, this dominion, this spiritual kingdom. What a, what a, what a calling. What an what a obligation we have. What a role we play in the earth. Beloved, this chaos we find going on around us, my opinion, an opinion that I believe I can back up with various passages of Scripture, is the disciplining of the church for not being the stewards of this mystery properly. That if the church had hallowed the name of God had honored the risen Savior and set forth to the nations the word of God when it comes to defining marriage, when it comes to defining gender, when it comes to even, uh, um, um, you know, the things that are righteous in God's sight, even as a nation. The Bible tells us that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin tears it down. Is exactly what we're witnessing. But who is the stewards of that message? Who are the ones to hallow that message? Who are the ones to herald and scream from the rooftops that message? The church. And she has not done so. Faithfully. Yes, praise God, bits and pieces, but not collectively. In fact, I'm sure you would be offended as much as I've been offended at how many churches 
are flying the pride flag and showing open support to the offensive enemies of Jesus Christ. There can be no compromise in these matters of righteousness. You know, I've been told before, I was like, well, Pastor Stanfield, you really ought to lay off of some of these things. I mean, not in this church, but in times past, I've been said, you know, you'll never, we'll never grow a church if you keep preaching like this. <laughs> I, I can't grow a church. Christ said he would build his church. And then he went on to say that the gates of hell should not prevail against the church he builds. Because we're witnessing what man has built and it's collapsing. But there's, praise God, the remnant, those who, who, who walk by the dictates of the spiritual kingdom, by the spiritual word, by the power of the spirit residing in us. We know the truth. We know the truth. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. And Paul talks about this administration. First Timothy chapter one and verse four, I'll just read this verse to you. It says, pay no attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom with, with offices, ministers, elders, deacons. It's a, it has a government. We see displayed Acts 15. I'm, I'm moving quickly just for the sake of time. It, it's a kingdom with rules. It's, it's telling how many Christians that take the word grace and act as if there's no responsibility to the grace. That is, that grace to them is a license to do whatever. And we see in the parable the good and the bad. We see a discarding taking place. And in fact, it's a powerful picture because what Jesus is pointing out to is those that are discarded by his called ministers are the ones that are gathered up and thrown into the fiery furnace. You can see the connection. We're gathered out of the world. And then there's a gathering and a separation that takes place within the ministry of this kingdom. There's always disciplining. There's always a, a sowing and reaping taking place within the kingdom itself. And then there will be this final sifting separation at the very end where Jesus, who will come as the judge of all men, well, and settle every account. And I will do a sermon on the doctrine of judgment before I finish the parable. Ephesians chapter 6, while you're still in the book of Ephesians, 
teaches us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. You got to think about Zechariah. It's not by our strength, but it's by what? The Lord's power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggles is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the day of evil and having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Brothers and sisters, that's our weapons. These are the weapons of the church. And Jesus had to come, did he not, and teach us in the Sermon on the Mount. False teachers do come, do come to the church. They hold places in the church. And if you look at Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. And then he goes on to speak about, listen, you've heard it said. But I tell you, now I say that, beloved, and I want to end. I, I want to make sure we understand that when we enter into this spiritual unity and this society of saints, that there are obligations, there are rules, there are responsibilities that we all take up when we do so. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 20, he says, therefore, we are ministers. Therefore, we as ambassadors for Christ, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what they do. Put away your sin. Come into this society, this communion of the saints with Christ and continue to be gathered to Christ and continue to be washed and cleansed from your sin and continue to grow in grace. We, to be gathered and perfected. Last verse, Ephesians 5. I'm sorry, Ephesians 4. I, I want to read this and I'm going to make some application and we'll be finished this morning. Now, Paul goes into this doxology, this, this confession, but then he begins at verse uh, 10. He says, and he, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the, the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure and the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed 
here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Summarized in this statement, beloved, God is using you, you to help grow everyone else. He's using the ministry of ministers and pastors and teachers and the word of God impressed upon you that you might take it, that you would mature and in your maturing, use your own gifts and talents for the perfecting and the building up and the edification of the church. You say, well, that's a... so." That's lofty. That's a high view of the church. Well, it's the body of Christ. He's the head. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to leave you with this thought as we consider this spiritual aspect of this dominion of Christ the Messiah. Ephesians 1, and in Paul's prayer... He puts it succinctly and clearly, the role of the church and the vision that Christ has for the church. Verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. The point being is this, beloved. History exists for the sake of the church. Everything God does is for the sake and edification of his church. I want to read to you this closing, this closing comment. Listen to this, William Symington. Now, I don't know what your view of the church is. It might be a good one, but it might not be good enough. And so examine yourself with the word that I just preached, this word that I just read, and this statement. Listen to this. William Symington says this. He says, although everything connected with it may not be in itself spiritual, that is the kingdom, everything connected with it may be subservient to what is spiritual. His point is that the kingdom of God encompasses even the physical world. The grand aim and purpose of the whole may be of this description. While many things of a different nature may be subordinate to this end, the dominion of the Messiah may extend over many things besides the saints. 
and yet embrace nothing but what is somehow or another fitted to be of service to these saints. The Father has given him to be head over all things, but the reason of this or the reason for this doesn't terminate in these things themselves. It points to a higher, more spiritual object. He has given him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Whatever power the mediator possesses is for the good of the church. It is given an exercise for this purpose. But what we ask is there that is not good for the church. Would the wheels of providence continue to revolve? Would the pillars of the universe be upheld? No. No. The church is the great conservative element to the world and all that is in it. Nor is there anything which is not capable of being rendered by infinite wisdom and power and subservient to the interests of God's covenant society. Meaning, beloved, everything that we are experiencing is on the behalf of God in Christ to his church for her growth, for her maturing, for her sanctifying, for her cleansing. Brothers and sisters, how many of us need to spend time thinking about what we have done and what we have not done for God's glory? It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a glorious kingdom, a kingdom of great spiritual power. And we should all fall under the spell of its glory today and be amazed that our God continues to patiently move us along in history. Brothers and sisters, we're being judged, we're being disciplined, we're being chastened. The remedy to that is repentance and rising up and doing those things we've been called to do in the blessed name of Christ our King. Let's pray. Now, Father, do bless us with this truth and help us to seal it in our hearts. Lord, come and put your seal upon it. Come and help us see, O Lord, that only you can cleanse a man. Only you can cleanse a woman and make them good. Only you, O Lord, can govern them and guide them and lead them, O Lord. In this great spiritual house, this kingdom, Lord, this dominion of Christ. And we pray, O Lord, that even this morning we would have a renewed interest and a renewed passion for the dominion of Christ. And come, O Lord, teach us and show us. Lord, lead us, Lord, by your word and will to do what you would have us do. In Christ's name, amen.